Hello, and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Laurel Thompson. As we transition into fall, some of us might be returning to school, or in any case, we might be developing some goals for our playing that will take us through the remainder of the year. And I thought it was the perfect time to share an interview I did a while back with Julia Reddy of the Violin Class Podcast. If you recall, she interviewed me earlier this year about teaching adults, and later on we had this chat about making more time for music. Julia has recently become a new mother, so there is certainly a juggling act with such a big transition in the family and trying to make time for everything. And beyond her personal experience, she answers this question with a wealth of experience from her private teaching studio. We talk about getting the most out of limited time, creative ways to make scales interesting, and some tips for juggling different types of music we might need to prepare, such as solo repertoire versus technical work and orchestral work, and how to make sure that we're making time for everything at the same time we're making sure that our overall ability and progress is steady and balanced. I really enjoyed chatting with Julia about these topics, and I hope you'll find value in listening into our conversation. Before we get started, I wanted to just read a little bit from her bio. Julia Reddy seeks to bring nuanced sounds and a creative approach to classical music. Comfortable both on stage as a performer, as a teacher, and in a studio as an arranger and composer, Julia is a versatile musician with many interests. In an effort to make classical violin training more accessible, Julia hosts the Violin Class Podcast, a resource for people learning violin as adults. A passionate music educator, she also has an online violin studio where she enjoys teaching amateur adult violinists of all levels. And finally, we are getting a taste for Julia's playing with our intro and outro music today. This is the Melody Habrock number one. I'm not 100% sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I will put a link in the show notes. And it's a very heartfelt piece with a lot of ethnic flavors and personality and just beautifully played by Julia. So I hope you enjoyed that as well. Without further ado, let's dive in. So how has motherhood changed? I'm sure it's (laughs) changed everything, but how has it changed your practice and teaching (laughs) schedules so far? You're still on maternity leave or or how is it looking? I'm into things. I've been working with a really wonderful sub while I was away and um, I'm picking things back up now. But it's obviously changed everything, but very much my my mindset, I think, is the number one. Um, taking an extended break away from teaching, this is, you know, what, it took three or four months off. Um, it's the, the longest t- break I was realizing that I've taken from teaching violence since I was like, 15 years old. So it's been really good to, to reflect and think about how I want to structure things, how I like to explain things, um, exploring other interests and hobbies too. And I think putting myself in the, in the space of being a student at things, um, I just feel really refreshed and super ready to get back into teaching um, and playing too. I'm pretty out of shape to be honest, but I've, I've started up again recently 
do a little bit of technique warm up without any pressure. I don't have any big contracts coming up, which is nice, but um, it's been great. Honestly, would highly recommend to any violinist take a nice break. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if you found this, but I've had a few students who've gone through pregnancy and I found a couple students. It's like while they were still pregnant, finding a lot of interesting like technical challenges, like joints being, and we just likened it to maybe like all of the hormones opening up the joints or something, but feeling like, mm-hmm. especially maybe like the pinky on the the bow hand and, and just the left hand and stuff, just things feeling a little bit less strong and secure. And, and then, you know, the birth happens. <laughs> and then thankfully, things have seemed to go back to normal. But are you finding any interesting challenges in that way or differences or... Uh, that's such a good question. You know, my pregnancy, I was extremely tired to the point where I, you know, was kind of not functional in the way that I normally am as far as getting things done. So I had to really be gentle with the amount of things that I gave myself to do. And practicing was not one of those things unless I had something very pressing um, to do. And I was able to give myself a little bit of, of space. So, um Technique-wise, I just since I wasn't practicing as much as I do in normal life, I, I hadn't realized anything with the joints. But um, for sure, if if you had a pregnancy like mine, at least just being tired um, just made it so that I had to take a bit of a break. That's why now that I'm getting back into things and I have my normal amounts of energy and my body's starting to feel like it did before. Um, it's just I think being patient with myself as I'm getting back into things, uh, not expect, you know, all of my progress, you can say it hasn't been gotten undone in three weeks and it's not going to take three weeks to get back to my level, but, um, I've taken extended breaks before in, in my life. I've had a playing injury when I was in, in school. So I know what it is to, to feel out of shape and I know what the process is for getting back into things. It just takes a little bit of time and a little bit of planning, but, um, yeah, it's, as long as there's no pressure, I think it's a really enjoyable thing to do, actually, just taking it one day at a time. And I think in a, a month or two, I'll be I'll be feeling good and playing some harder stuff right now. It's just doing some scales and playing through some mid-level music. And it's honestly, it's really fun. It's really nice to be able to play violin without having to stress or worry about validating a contract or having a hard performance so yeah again also would highly recommend just taking a bit of time off from if it's possible for you at least but I gotta say having a, a very small baby and practicing violin really work very well together because I'm forced to take very frequent breaks which is what you should be doing anyways and um, the baby just loves music so when she's a little fussy I'll just put her down and play two tunes with my husband too who's a guitarist so it's actually been really easy in that sense to get back into playing kids just love music so that's been a nice plus that's awesome it's just a nice confirmation for people out there who sometimes you know procrastinate or or feel a little bit less motivated oh I only have five minutes Eh, not even worth it I won't even bother won't even open up the case but yeah just how much we can actually get done if we just put our mind to it and open up the case and yeah. So to get the most out of that limited time, how are, are you finding or have you found in the past or with your students 
that it's better to spend that time focusing on polishing up old repertoire or practicing technique or scales or just to kind of like maintain your chops. I assume that with a shorter amount of time to practice, then maybe we're not expecting to make huge strides, but just to make sure we're not sliding backwards or anything like that? That's a really good question. And I think, um, you know, with anything that has to do with practice and students, it really depends on the situation. Also, my past experiences, the way that I've handled this has varied. Um, I think the first thing to think about is being really clear on what your goal is in the, the moment that you're left, that you're in. So right now, my goal is just to, you know, take my time with things, play things that are fun, not necessarily focusing on technique because I don't have, as I said, deadlines. But when I was a music student and had to take a year off from playing, uh, I had a deadline. I had to be able to perform a concerto um, after having pretty much, well, what felt like lost all of my technical abilities that I'd been playing for, um, taking time off from. And uh, there was a lot more stress. Is this with the injury yeah, exactly. that you had had? Or? A playing injury when I was in second, third year of school. And um, that was very, very different because I had to, I, I didn't have any motivational issues there. I was very eager to get back into playing. Um, I just had to kind of re-examine all of my technique. And essentially the goal was to be able to, to fix things so that I could play in a way that was um, safer for me, you could say. And so two situations with a very different outcome. And the way I think I would handle limited time for my own personal examples is very different based on those. So for the first one, I would definitely have just focused on practice, uh, practicing technique, because I had a limited amount of time that I was allowing myself to practice, again, just since I was recovering from injury. Um, and if I have a student who maybe is struggling with time and motivation, I would suggest for them to be focusing more on playing through old repertoire, having fun with it, uh, not worrying so much about the technique. But if you've got a goal that's more technique focused or, again, a deadline of performance, then maybe that limited time is going to be focusing more on exercises, skills. Either way, though, I think it's very important to have a plan and planning out your practice, too. So having a bit of structure is going to go a long way if you have limited time. That way, when you get to the instrument, you know exactly what you're planning on doing. You don't have to spend any time, um, you know, looking through your music and all of that stuff. The other thing that I think is really helpful for either situation when you have little time is to keep your instrument very close to you. So whether that's, um, you know, if you don't have pets or children, maybe an open case. Um, I have pets and a child now, so it's it's got to be, safely put away, but always very close to me so I don't have to be scrambling. So there's very little friction between me and the violin. I think that both of those things go a really, really long way in, um, in getting stuff done in a short amount of time. It's being productive. I'm curious what you might say about this, but I always have students asking about how much time you talk about structure. So like how much time, if we only have, say, 15 minutes how much time should I spend on this? And how much time should I spend on that? And obviously the level and what someone might be preparing for might change that. But do you have 
sort of a general rule of thumb around Yeah, for sure. And again, I think that I'm going to preface every question with it depends on the student and what they're working on, but I can give you maybe a little bit of insight as to um, maybe my reasoning. So again, I think it, it, it's important to look at what is coming up, not only in your violin world, like maybe you have an audition, um, but also in your real life world, because both of those exist together, like violin needs to fit into your life. Um, especially if it's something that you do as a hobby, even a really serious hobby. So if there's a week where you have a lot of, you know, important exams or you're traveling or something like that, like probably not a good idea to think about um, adding a lot of stressful practice to your plate. So it's going to be very dynamic. And depending on what you have coming up, sometimes in 15 minutes, it's going to be 10 minutes of scales because you're really trying to focus on a certain thing and then five minutes of repertoire. Um, or vice versa. But generally, if you, let's say if you've got 15 minutes, I would say probably five minutes of warm-up and a really, really uh, structured and efficient warm-up routine just for technique. And within that, I like to think about doing one left-hand exercise, one right-hand exercise, and then putting them together in a scale. So if I've only had five minutes, I'm probably going to get into the nitty-gritty here. I'm probably going to do one minute of uh, so just like a, a minute bow you may have heard of this if you're if you're listening um laurel i don't know if you practice this but just having your bow on the string on an open string and holding it for a minute it's a really really good way of improving your tone and kind of getting connected with the instrument so probably doing a minute on that and honestly these days i'm not doing a minute i'm doing 30 seconds <laughs> confession i'll do it twice <laughs> and tell me, so I've always wondered about this, actually. So the minute long bow, I mean, you can get in really close to the bridge, you can go really slow, but it's hard to get a good tone. Mm -hmm. Do you have a recommendation for that? Because I've also seen people on YouTube who are literally scratching away for a minute. And they're trying to demo this. And I'm going like, are we really supposed to be doing that? I could see it as like a relaxing the arm. Yeah, maybe just letting gravity kind of take our down bow kind of an exercise. But but then I feel like, well, we should probably be getting good tone too. <laughs> For sure. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's it's funny how there are all of these exercises that are kind of standardized and everyone has such a different interpretation. But the way that I was taught the minute bow from my teacher, um, Axel Strauss at the Shirley School of Music at McGill, was that for if you're doing a, a full minute, it's not, I mean, maybe it's possible to get a good tone. I'm sure he could. <laughs> but um, the way I try to focus on it is um, not having any holes in the sound. So having a really consistent sound, not slowing down and not having any like shakes or holes. So really, as you were saying, kind of relaxing, but for a minute, um, most of us are probably not going to get a beautiful tone. And if that's your focus, maybe cutting it down to 30 seconds, 45 seconds. But what I try to do is whatever amount of time that I'm working on, I've got a timer in front of me and I'm trying to segment my bow with the timer. So if I'm doing 30 seconds at the 15 second mark, I'm halfway through. And I think right now, at least for what I'm working on, that's more important than the tone. And then the tone work comes in when I'm adding the left hand, doing things that are um, a bit more contextual. So for me right now, how I'm working on it is a work is a really just like a, a warm up, but for sure, it's probably um, good to think about it in other ways too and focusing on tone and maybe cutting down the amount of seconds is a good way of doing that as well. I don't know how you feel about that, Laurel. 
Yeah, that that confirms what I've what I've thought too, because I've thought, well, you know, the kind of like scratchy version, but what you're saying in keeping whatever that sound is, it's let's call it a sound effect, keeping it consistent because really what's happening as the bow is gliding over the string, it's like those little, you know, the rosin and those little kind of rough kind of hairs or whatever on the horse hair. It's you know, it's like spinning the string essentially. So keeping that consistency, even if it's not, you know, the singing tone that you'd want to take into your concert hall, but that's going to really help us with just getting the balance all the way through the bow of volume and arm weight. And so I can see that as like an intermediate step. And then, yeah, I was always a little bit curious about, okay, so this is also good to practice, you know, with good tone too. And, and obviously, yeah, maybe a little less amount of time for a bow stroke. And if we can take that learning that we get with the very slow version into the, you know, just slightly faster bow, then I think, yeah, that's a, that's a great exercise. I always tell my students long bows, we need to warm up all the joints, right? It's a warm up, so warm up everything. Yeah. And then, so then you combine that with a left hand exercise as well, you said? I kind of break that up into three different areas. The less time I have, the more simple I try to keep it. Like, you know, when I'm practicing a lot, if I've got a lot going on um, and I need to be in really good shape, I like to make these very elaborate plans and I'll do like three minutes of shifting and five minutes of abroad, you know, all of this stuff. But if I've got 15 minutes, I'm picking one (laughs) and the next day I'll pick another and the next day I'll pick another. So I'll just kind of rotate all of this um, in, in the framework that I like to use. So in the left hand, I'm either doing some sort of dexterity exercise, I'm doing a relaxing exercise, or I'm doing shifting or vibrato. Again, ideally I'm doing all of those things, but if I've got a limited amount of time, um, I'm not going to spend one minute here, one minute there, one minute there. I'd rather just spend two minutes on something and do it really well. And if I've not a lot of time, probably it's going to be dexterity or relaxing. And you can combine things. Sometimes you can work on relaxing and shifting or, you know, whatever that is, but these days just kind of waking up my fingers and focusing on really the fundamentals, like moving from the base joints, making sure that I'm not doing anything funky with my thumb, just that stuff. And um, Shradiac and Subcheck are great places to look for exercises. Um, Nowadays, I prefer to just make up my own. I think it keeps me on my toes and I don't know, I feel like at a certain point, you can only play so much Subcheck, even though it's really good for you. These days, I'm doing up my own versions of those, but working on very, very much similar things. And I challenge anyone to do that as well as just, you know, find your own combination of full steps and half steps. And if you've got a good dexterity exercise, just put a metronome on it and call it a day. That's your left and right hand warm up. Yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting to look at, again, like as a professional violinist, what I'm currently working on is very similar to what I'm giving to like my first, second year students, minus shifting vibrato and, you know, some of the more difficult bow techniques, we can say the more advanced bow techniques, but like when I'm taking time to work on the warmups and the fundamentals, we're doing the same things. So I think it's really interesting to kind of think about how our perception of all of these exercises and these areas of focus evolves with our level, but the the actual exercises are kind of the same. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, when you're going through elementary school, high school, college, you know, and you're having this teacher assigning you things and you think, okay, yeah, I'm done with that one. <laughs> 
And then later, yeah, it's like coming back, it's like, oh, wow, this is a great exercise. And we just have new appreciation for it and can look at it in a different way or just, I mean, we're like athletes, right? So it's like that constant need to just keep our conditioning up. And there's so many great exercises, some like the ones we're talking about that I come back to again and again. The other ones, it might be a few years or who knows, I might never circle around on them again. But probably if, if I don't, it's probably just a time thing. I just didn't have the time or I didn't think about it. <laughs> there's so much great stuff yeah, out there. Yeah, we can do it all. Yeah, but I think it's helpful, at least for me as a teacher, to kind of stay in tune with what my students are working on as well. So, um, you know, even though I do like to practice, you know, Kreutzer, Gignacchi, more difficult caprices and etudes that don't, I really like as well. Um, you'll find me working on Wolfhart and Mazas quite often, too, because I want to make sure that I... I'm very familiar with everything that I'm going to be teaching and I'm probably working on different things than my students are, but, you know, maybe I'll be playing something in fifth position instead of first position, but it's not really the notes that are important. It's really just what you're focusing on. So we've been talking about some different favorite warm-up routines and exercises and stuff like that. I saw on your site that you have a warm-up exercise um, packet, and maybe you could tell people a little bit about that and where they can find that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've just put together um, essentially a framework and kind of what I was talking about earlier uh, of how to structure your practice, which I think is really important if you have limited time and Actually, if you have more time too, so you're you're going through all of the different things that you um, should should be looking at in your practice. So the the ebook is just all about structuring your warm ups, and we have a section for what you should focus on in your left hand, your right hand, and then your overall scales where you're putting things together. And in scales, I give a few different patterns that you can try, so some rhythmic patterns. Um, some metronome things and some slow tonal exercises, which basically are putting the actual areas of focus of each separate hand into context. Because I think if you've got very limited time, that's very important. If you look at things too separately, we kind of miss how we put those things into action, which kind of is besides the point. So I think, at least for me, scales are really that segue into bringing each of your conditioning, I really like that word, the conditioning practice, into something that's actually going to be useful. And so it's just kind of laying out a foundation for that and giving you, I think I give nine different exercises that you can try. And if you'd like to check that out, you can get it for free on my website at violinclass.co slash warmup. Yeah, I'll have a, a link in the show notes so they can just click right on there and check it out. Yeah, scales... It's interesting because I had to do scales, obviously, growing up. And when I first, you know, was solo, 
<laughs> didn't have a teacher anymore. I kind of put scales aside for a few years and I still did them with my students, but maybe it was because I thought, okay, I'm, I'm done. I've, I've done all the scales. I've done all that stuff, <laughs> you know, or maybe I was sick yeah. of them or maybe I just, you know, was focused on other things. Um, I've always really loved etudes. So I think I just really dove into that. But then I came back with a new appreciation for scales and just like what you're saying, where it's really putting the two sides together and there's just so much we can do with a scale. It's not just going up and down, right? <laughs> different rhythms, different bowings, different finger patterns. It doesn't just have to be what's written in the book. What are some of your favorite things to do with scales maybe? Uh, yeah, I am thinking about this all the time because uh, if, if you're more of a, a beginner student, you may not have heard of the Kalamian acceleration scale, but that's something that I think almost any violinist learns and it's just how to play passages fast so we start very slow and then we go double time triple time and we just go faster and faster and I don't know I feel like I spent all of my teen years just working on this scale sequence and right now my goal is to not play that at all and only do scales in ways that are fun so um, right now I'm doing groupings a lot like groups of five groups of seven all the stuff that I never really did. You know, we often do triplets. We do uh, 16th notes, but right now I'm trying to see if I can challenge myself to play uh, five notes in a slur and then two notes in a slur and then five notes in a slur and then seven, you know, just stuff that's a little bit funky. So I'm doing different rhythms like that. Um, the other thing that I'm doing a lot right now is position work. So instead of doing those three octave scales where you're shifting all the way up on the E string, um, just trying to play everything in second position, trying to play everything in seventh position, just things that are getting my brain feeling, you know, just little challenges like that, like little puzzles. I find that super satisfying because in 10 minutes I can have something figured out and, um, you know, trying scales with different fingerings too. If you play the, the Galamian fingering for scales, try with, you know, maybe starting with a third finger instead of a second finger or a first finger instead of a second finger. Um, so I'm doing a lot of that just on the technique side. side. Again, just making little little puzzles for myself and keeping myself on my toes, essentially. And then the other thing that I'm doing is trying to think about playing scales musically and not having it be a collection of just mindless finger exercises, but actually trying to give myself a goal. So um, I might try to think about a piece that I really like. We'll take, I don't know, how about the Gunnerweisen? Um, so I was playing that earlier today. So Sarasate, the Gunnerweisen, and just taking different sections and thinking about, okay, this introduction, how can I translate that into like the energy and the, the essence of that into a scale. And can I play a scale in the style of the Gunnermarschen? Or how about Mozart? Can I play a scale in the style of Mozart? And I find that, first of all, it's super fun to do that. And um, it just takes all of the, the technical, like, mindlessness and monotony. Um, if, if you're not someone that likes scales, I actually like scales. But, you know, I think just taking a different approach makes it a lot more enjoyable and a lot more useful, I think, if we're thinking more music and less fingers. I love all of that. And the idea of doing the different groupings I found really helpful as well. And that's part of the mm -hmm. Galanian system yeah. too. I think 
Maybe the core of it is that acceleration approach that you were talking about, but that's definitely not the whole thing. I think we just maybe get hung up Mm -hmm. on that, right? (laughs) And there's that goal of like, let's get to the 30 second notes or whatever. But yeah, but yeah, he has that whole, in my book, um, it was like an, an extra kind of leaflet that, you know, was like separate from the from the scale book, but it had all of this, it was just daunting to look at, but all of these different rhythms and groupings and slurs and like you're saying, sometimes Mm -hmm. five and then let's do seven or whatever, just to really keep our brain engaged. And I find that's, that's very helpful. And like you're saying puzzles, I like that word too. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep it interesting. Like how many ways can we do this? And that makes it fun. And then uh, I also like the idea of emulating a composer or something like that. Just we could even, I suppose, maybe take a scale and just even improvise up the scale. I've had students do that. And it doesn't even have to be the scale going all the way up, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. It's like, why don't you just, oh, that's an interesting note. Let's go up to that note. And maybe let's turn around and let's go back up a little bit further and you know, just kind of free form, feeling mm-hmm. out the intonation, feeling out the hand shape, everything technical about it, the tone, enjoying a note and just lingering on a note, maybe for several bow strokes, uh, tr- trying some vibrato. I mean, you could really go quite free form too, as much as we could be very structured and diligent too. So it's endless, <laughs> I think. Oh, totally. It's endless. For sure. And I don't know, I think coming to it, uh, you know, after having done a lot of the, the, the heavy lifting, we can say with, again, focusing a lot on acceleration scales and um, things that I think maybe are, are more important to you when you're a younger player. <laughs> like right now, I just, I just don't care so much about being able to play super fast. I just want to have fun with it. So um, yeah, just giving things context right now is what I'm, what I'm really focused on and trying to make everything feel very musical and um, enjoyable too. So I've had students who have this certain goal in mind. I want to play this piece. It's probably some of these pieces like Zagunner Weizen, like you're saying. Uh, they, they've never played a note before though, right? <laughs> and that's the goal, which is awesome. Okay, great. Let's see how we can get you there. But maybe they don't have that much time to practice. So how can we determine and set realistic expectations for progress, you know, day to day, month to month, year to year. What do you tell students when maybe, it, I don't know, sometimes it's time to, to boost the practice or we need to kind of back up a little bit on our goals? How do you approach that? That's a really good question. Again, it depends, but I'll, I'll try to give you something um, concrete as to what I think about. And I will also mention that I, these days I work solely with adult learners so all different levels but I'm not so much working with um, like pre-professional teenagers or small children so I'll kind of gear this towards um, those that demographic and I'm just mentioning that because if it's an adult that's taking lessons generally um, I'm not going to force practice not force is a very bad word but um how can I say this? If it's if it's like maybe a twelve year old and they're I'm, they're still learning how to be disciplined and be motivation, and I feel like my role as a teacher is to to guide them that. Whereas an adult already has those skills and it's kind of on them whether they want to be practicing. So that little um, preface aside, 
I think it's very helpful to um, think about your year in four different types of categories. So you're gonna have a time in the year where you're gonna have some very high intensity practice and you're gonna get a lot of gain from that, right? You're gonna work hard and you're gonna see a lot of practice, um, a lot of progress happening in a fairly fast amount of time because you're putting in the time. Most of the year though is gonna be kind of middle, mid intensity and this is gonna depend on what's going on in your life, but just kind of the, the daily grind, you're going to have more slow and steady, consistent progress coming through whatever practice you're doing. And there's going to be some periods of the year. Maybe you are sick, maybe you're traveling, maybe you have, um, you know, a lot of stuff happening at work, whatever it may be, you're going to be just kind of on maintenance mode and trying not to lose progress, but just kind of, you know, low amounts of progress and you're just trying to maintain. And then there's like a fourth category that I'm going to say, like sometimes you just are taking a full break, you're not playing any violin and that's fine too. So if you think about your year that way, I think it really takes away a lot of the pressure to be always making huge amounts of progress towards your goals. And there's also going to be some years, like right now I'm in a pretty low intensity year. I'm probably not going to make much progress I'm just kind of maintaining and when I was in music school I was making high amounts of progress like it's always very very dynamic so I think having that kind of framework again helps to remove pressure from trying to make progress all the time and it's counterintuitive but if you put yourself under pressure I think that um, just the way that we're wired it's going to make it a whole big mountain in your head to be practicing and not going to practice so Thinking about that, and then the other one is being very, very consistent in very tiny chunks. So I can give you an analogy of if you are a marathon runner, you know, if you don't do anything for, let's say, three months and all you do is sit on the couch and then you try to run again, it's going to feel very, very painful and very difficult. And you're just not going to be able to do it. Whereas if you, even though you're not running marathons, you're just doing a 10-minute jog every day, you're going to have that kind of foundation to start building rather than if you've taken a lot of time um, completely, completely off. So yeah, I think being realistic is very important because if you only have five minutes a day, um, you you know, you will eventually get to the Gooner Wisen, but it's going to take a long time. And that's fine. You know, once you start rivaling, you're in it for life. So if, if it takes 20 years, it takes 20 years. Like, why does it matter as long as you're enjoying the time? But let's say if you want to perform the Gunnar Wisen in three months, you're going to have to reevaluate how much time you're putting in. Um, and you have to kind of look at what is going on in your life. Because if you, again, are have a really intense work period, probably that's not the best time to be trying to make huge amounts of progress on the violin, or at least you want to be realistic is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> has to fit into your life, not the other way around. I really like that. Yeah, I think a lot of, especially adults, maybe they try and like always they want to they want to keep the heat on all the time. I have a lot of students who yeah. they 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 see themselves making really good progress for a while, and then life happens a little bit, and then they start to kind of get in a funk because they feel like they're not able to make as much progress, and it's it's just because life happened, right? But it's so easy yeah. to then start to feel like we're failing at violin. When it's just like if we have that mindset, even just from the first day starting off, I could see how then 
someone would just say, well, it's obvious. And, and to, the, to an outsider, and, and if that student were to take a, a step back, it's obvious. Well, I didn't have very much time to practice, did I? This crazy thing was happening at work or just had a baby or whatever, right? So it's just important to look at the big picture, totally. I think. Yeah, I think if you consider that you're in violin for life and you're going to be playing for 20, 30, 40 years, um, you know, your three weeks that you took off, is not going to make a very big difference. Like, to be honest, it's just not. So big picture is totally where it is. And I think as adults looking at different skills, we're used to things happening quickly for us. And we were actually talking about this um, last time we, we chatted on Laurel's episode of the Violin Craft podcast. But yeah, just I think keeping the, the, the mindset of a child and a young learner of just being at a beginner of things. And you know, when you're five years old, you know that you're going to be a beginner at something and it's going to take 10, 15, you can't even, you don't have the concept for how long things are going to take. Um, whereas when we're adults, we're, we're smarter, we're faster, we're more efficient. And you just assume like, okay, in a year, bam, I'm going to be able to do this. And just, it's a lot more progressive and organic. And that's the beauty of it. I think that's what we love about um, Island. And I know you have some really good articles on, your blog about that Laurel too. So I know it's something that you, um, that you talk about with your students as well. Yeah. The whole mindset and psychology is, it's definitely, we, we can't really get far away from it. No. I, think. <laughs> I think just music, music requires so much from us and particularly the bowed stringed instruments require so much from us and they're very rewarding, but demanding at the same time. So Let's see, a couple questions are coming up based on what you're just saying. What about a student who say they're putting in what they think is a decent amount of practice time, but they're just not seeing the results? I can imagine someone saying, well, maybe I'm just not good at this. Maybe I just, this isn't my thing or something versus, well, maybe I just need to put in a bit more time. How do we gauge that? And again, <laughs> it's very individual. It yeah. Um, but it's a, that's such a difficult situation to be in and I have been in that situation many times as a violinist I'm sure you have too Laura yeah just over the years there are there I can totally relate to that um and I think it's probably even harder as an adult learner because you're you're more self-aware of of things you're, you're more analytical of yourself um but yeah so to to go back to your question I think I have maybe two different answers on on that so the first is I think actually examining how you're practicing um practicing is kind of an art and I think that even you can you can have a good level if you've put enough years and not have a really good practice routine and I say that as you know that that was me like I didn't really figure out how to be a really good practicer until I was probably in the year before I went to music school um so just making sure that what you're doing is actually going to get you towards your goal. So that that's probably not just doing run throughs of your piece every time you're coming to the instrument, like being very, very specific. Um, where can I spend my time in a way that's going to give me the most results? So if you're playing through something and there's maybe a shift that you're always stumbling on, why don't you just do a day where you're starting just on that shift and figuring that out for a few days. And um, generally there's only a you really tricky spots that are going to require most of our attention. So, um, yeah, the, the first part of that, I think, is being very intentional and organized in your practice. 
I'm just thinking of some, it's happened to all of us, right, as teachers and as students, where we were in the lesson and we go, okay, I know there was a tough spot. Maybe it's like orchestra music or something. So as a teacher, I don't necessarily know their orchestra music 100% yet. They're just bringing it to me. Yeah, we went over it in rehearsal. Gosh, I don't know. I think it was in this piece. Oh, maybe it was in this piece. (laughs) And they're shuffling through all their pages and go like, oh, dear. Okay, next time. Can you just write down, take a jot, jot mm-hmm. it down, take, take, you know, make a note in your phone or on a sticky note or something. Cause yeah, just realizing, like you're saying, those spots that give us 90% of the problems or whatever, just knowing where those spots are and spending most of our time on that is mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. And how much of the time do we maybe just run through? We run through the whole thing. We encounter those spots once we're done. <laughs> It's going to take a long time. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to take a long time to practice those spots, you know, up to the the level that we need to get them. So yeah, I'll tell students, I'll say, okay, see that one measure there? Practice that one measure like 20 times more than you practice anything else on this page. And they go like, whoa, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Yeah. You have to do it, right? It's so great that you're giving that kind of specific instruction, I think, as well in lessons I found. You know, when you're fresh out of music school, you don't realize how much things are very intuitive when you're practicing. And I think it took me many years in my teaching before I realized like, oh, you have to really help someone, you know, walk them through step by step exactly how to practice something. Because if they're new to the instrument, that might not be obvious that, you know, if there's a difficult measure, you need to practice it more, but like 20 times more, like like significantly more, not just like three times more. Um, So, you know, I wish I had had that kind of specific instruction when I was growing up too. I think it would have saved me a lot of time. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, sometimes it could be 50 times more. I mean, I think about what's the easiest measure on the page. Maybe there's a measure that's just four quarter notes or something and it's just, it's fine. No big deal. No accidentals, no fourth fingers, nothing crazy, no shifts. So if you kind of take that measure and then you compare it to this really difficult measure that has a ton of notes and accidentals and it's going all up the fingerboard, like, yeah, like how many times harder is that measure than that other measure? And yeah, we might have some measures that 50, 100 times more. (laughs) So, but I think 20 times, at least that's pretty good for most situations. I'll give you what my my father-in-law does because I've married into a family of performers and musicians and he's a flatist and um his role for a difficult passage is he needs to be able to play it 10 times in a row without any mistakes and every time he makes a mistake he starts to count over from zero essentially and that sounds pretty straightforward you know like that sounds like it wouldn't be that difficult but like you might be at it for like an hour by the time you get through like i'm talking one measure I've definitely experienced that situation with uh, doing studio work. It's like to get it just how I want Mm -hmm. it, it can take a lot of takes. I mean, sometimes we get it on the first try, but again, it depends on how difficult it is. And I I love that because it really sets the bar and we can get excited about meeting that goal and we just kind (laughs) of keep at it until it happens. I think... It might be a little dangerous for someone who tends to really beat themselves up, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. if we can just get over that and just kind of have the learning 
experience of it and sort of put put on the detective hat and just enjoy the process, then I love it. Totally. And I think if it's something, if you feel that you're getting frustrated with yourself and that you're being hard on yourself, you're probably picking too complex a goal. Like you have to really make it so, so simple. And there will be a, you know, a place like a goal that you can set yourself that will be manageable. So let's say it's, if you've got a measure and you keep messing up, even though you've been at it for, you know, three weeks and why am I still messing up this shift? Um, You're probably looking at too big of a section and you need to look at, you know, maybe just that one specific shift. And then within that shift, how can you break that down? Is that, um, you know, are you changing fingers? Can you do, can you look at half that shift? Can you look at a quarter of that shift? And there will be a place where you're able to do it. And then you just need to kind of add on from there. But I think as you were saying, like putting on the detective hat and figuring that out is really half the battle. Um, and you need to kind of get away from your ego a little bit, uh, and yeah, just try to imagine that you're a scientist in a lab and you're like, okay, what can I tweak here? What can I tweak there? And that's where I think you get really into a flow of something that feels a lot more fun rather than having pressure to always like perform and achieve things. You got to enjoy the process. I think so much of the time, even in lessons, I had a student earlier today and her face got super flushed when I asked her to do something that was new and a little intimidating. And I said, by the way, if you make a mistake, that's fine. It's just us here. Let's make some mistakes. And then she kind of calmed down. She was able to do it. So yeah, we just have to recognize that. And I like the idea of just really chunking it down and being patient with that process, right? And then the process of chunking back out. I feel like sometimes students can fall into a trap there where they come to lesson and they say, well, I got that one measure down, but now when I try and put it together with everything else, I just still always mess up on that measure. And so there's sort of that process of then being able to maybe play three measures, you know, just the two measures surrounding that measure, or sometimes I think it's a focus thing too, or either where it's catching us off guard or because it's been a difficult measure, we've thought about it so many times, it's coming and we go, ah, (laughs) and we kind of tense up or something. So have you found that too with yourself and with students? Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, this is where we get really into the mental aspect of things. So, you know, we talked about breaking things down, as you said, and that's, um, that's, practice but then you also have to practice performing and performing isn't necessarily getting on stage performing is also playing in front of your teacher like who hasn't felt nervous playing for your teacher before especially sometimes when like you practice really extra I find like that's when I used to be the most nervous because I had like the most amount to prove to my teacher in some ways I don't know if anyone can relate to that but um, Yeah. yeah putting things into context is I think the the last piece of our practice we have you know, our warm up and technique, we've talked about that, then our actual breaking down of the pieces, that's like kind of our, our the main body of our practice time. And then I think the third part, I like to think about, I just call it the three R's. And just the easy way to um, remember, remember, remembering to run through, to review, and then also work on reading. So run throughs, that can be either actually playing your piece from beginning to end, which even though we just talked about you shouldn't only be doing that, you should be doing that at least some of the time. Um, and sometimes it's not playing your whole piece beginning to end, especially if it's fairly new. 
And if you've been focusing on maybe just a tricky passage, just playing that passage beginning to end. But you have to kind of look at how that measure is going to connect to the rest of your practice. Otherwise, it kind of exists on its own island. Like once we figured out our destination, we need to build the road to get there too. So that's, I think, an important thing to remember when we're practicing is always putting it back into context. And that can be a process. We have to be patient with that. And maybe like you're saying with more of a performance mindset. So what's the whole phrase? What's, what's the arc of that? What's the feeling of that? What's the mood of that? What's the dynamic of that? And sometimes I find that helps students get a little out of their head. So it's not just like the measure's coming, the measure's coming, the measure's coming. I hope I make it (laughs) right. It's tough. It takes time. And that's another thing I wish just people kind of realized getting into it when they see these amazing performers. It's like, yeah, how much work went into that performance, right? We never know. But uh, if we knew that it was more than we probably thought, then I think we'd just be a little bit kinder to ourselves, maybe. Oh, for sure. And I'll share maybe a a story that I think relates to this. When uh, going back to when I was injured and I had to um, perform the Brooke Violin Concerto, uh, specifically, that was the concerto that I was um, learning at the time. We picked it because it was difficult enough that I'd be able to work on certain skills, but not so, you know, it wasn't Tchaikovsky, it wasn't too long. and anyway, so that's the concert I was working on. And I had been playing in for probably around three months before I was physically ready to perform anything. And I signed up for a master class. I was ready to go. And it went so terribly. Like it was just one thing after the other. Everything I had practiced so hard on just went out the window. And I could not understand why. Um, and my teacher was very kind. He sat down with me for a couple hours and it's going to be okay. And he, remember what he said is that you know, this was your first time performing it. Like you pr- pra- practice it all these times, but like you need to practice performing now. So, you know, come back on your sixth performance and if it's still not good then, then, you know, maybe we'll have to look at, at that. But um, you can't expect your first performance of something to go well, <laughs> which sounds very negative, but I think it's kind of, it takes a lot of pressure off of things. It's like, okay, you got to get a certain amount of performances before you can expect the performance to be successful on whatever metric you're you're judging. And if you think about all of the great violinists been talking about Hilary Hahn, how many times has Hilary Hahn performed the Sibelius violin concerto with orchestra in front of thousands of people? Like a lot. <laughs> and it's not her first rodeo. That's that's why she can do it so well. Like it's not that she's worked on the piece for so long. She's actually gone out and felt what it feels like to be nervous and play it, felt what it feels like to play it with some cold fingers, felt what it feels like to, you know, play it maybe at a certain tempo. And all of these different factors are things that we're always having to juggle. So, you know, it it gets very complex very quickly. Yeah, I've definitely experienced just a new level of familiarity with a piece just as soon as I perform it the first time. It's amazing. And, And it's not necessarily even that it's the greatest version, like, you know, you're saying, like, maybe it's not the best version, but it's, it's like just getting in a room with other people and doing it is Mm -hmm. huge. And then after that, it's always easier. And then it seems to get easier with 
other pieces too, just once we've gotten into the groove of performing. For sure. And I, you know, I thought that performance was so valuable when I was in music school. That's something I do with my studio still now is that we do um, just about a monthly studio class where all of my students will get on Zoom and they'll play for each other and not only practice performing, but also practice giving feedback to other players. And I think that this is like the best thing ever for anyone's playing because first of all, you get the jitters out. You you kind of see how your piece does under the pressure test, but there might be something that's working really well by yourself. And then as soon as you've got like six people listening to you or 20 people listening to you, um, you know, it kind of goes out the window and then, you got to go back and look and be like, okay, well, maybe I'll, I'll try this again and let me see if I can reinforce this. And then you have to go out and practice it again and, or perform it again. And on the second performance, it very generally goes much, much better. Um, you know, sometimes things happen and that's okay, but generally gets a lot better. The other thing that I love in that is that it gets students practicing getting feedback and it's so much easier to, especially if you've already played, like if you were the first to play, now you can just kind of relax for the rest of, of the class. Just watching people that are struggling with the same things that you're struggling. Um, maybe you're working on releasing the tension in your left thumb and you notice that that student is also working on that. And being able to kind of, first of all, identify that and then explain it to them in a way that's, you know, I would kind, always kind. I think that's very important um, because that's how people are going to be receptive to feedback. Um, and in a way that's very clear, like, okay, I see that this is an issue and how can you work on this? I'm working on this too. So both of those I think are very, very helpful in reinforcing pieces, whether or not you're a performing musician, even if you're just learning, just having something where you can, where you can be performing in some sort of way. I love it. Yeah the studio classes I had in college were sometimes very nerve wracking. Oh gosh. They're like the most <laughs> they were probably always nerve wracking, yeah. but but very helpful. And and I think when students, like you're saying, they, they see other students struggling with the same things or or they really just have to kind of put themselves for a moment into sort of that teacher chair. Mm-hmm. It's helping them recognize those issues that we all struggle with. And, and reflect on that in their own playing. And it just, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice feedback cycle. Maybe just a few more questions here. I was wondering about this could be an adult or definitely a kid as well, but just once someone joins a group, a youth orchestra or community orchestra or church groups and and different things, but there becomes these demands on their time and new repertoire to learn. And Mm -hmm. just as a teacher, how do you sort of juggle that within the lesson? And then also how do you approach helping them prepare and practice. What what seems to happen with me is that we just, as soon as the new orchestra music lands on our table, then we just really try and be diligent about figuring out all of the fingerings and bowings and everything that they need so that they can practice 
and with the hope that then we can get back to our scales and everything else. But sometimes it's just so much material. I have this one student where the orchestra conductor gives him like 20 pieces or something, and then they only choose maybe six to actually perform, but they don't know what it's going to be until just like maybe a month before the concert. So it's hard to, to juggle it all. Oh, that's, that's such a good question and something that I have really had to think a lot about in my studio. I, I don't know how it is um, in, with your students, but my students are in community orchestras. The music is so hard. Like they're playing legitimately just professional level concertos and symphonies. And it's just really, really advanced music. Um, and yeah, sometimes it's like we literally have to spend so much time just figuring out all the difficult passages. So, um, and, and same thing, honestly, for, I have some teenage students as well that are either pre-professional or just, you know, pretty advanced. And that when they're looking at um, youth orchestra auditions, it's, it, there's so much material. So I feel very validated that it's, it's not just um, a struggle for me as a teacher as well, that everyone has to juggle all those things. But I think, one thing that I've been trying to implement with that is using the, um, trying to be really smart about how we practice. So if we're working on certain etudes and scales, maybe taking directly from the music and taking those passages and creating, um, you know, we were talking about all these scale puzzles and exercises that we can do using the actual notes from the orchestra music. So you're kind of killing two birds with one stone there. And then just kind of, looking at the timeline of when you need to have learned certain things by um, and working backwards from there. So being kind of a little bit organized and clear about what your goals are. So I don't think it's a good idea to just sight read an orchestra and learn all the fingering the night before, obviously, but um, there is going to be a certain balance and it's going to be between you and your teacher to find exactly what that is but probably it's going to change from week to week like the the week before the concert you're going to be spending more time on the orchestra music but maybe before that you can kind of there's there's some push and pull to it so yeah but that's that's a tricky one that's a hard one I don't have a perfect answer for yeah and like you're saying a lot of this music is pretty difficult even in a youth orchestra or community orchestra, and there might be things that a student hasn't even encountered yet. I've had students where, you know, they're sitting in the second violin section, they've done some first and some third position, maybe a little bit of second position, and suddenly there's a part, who would have thought, in the second violin section, fifth position, okay, we've got to look at fifth position all of a sudden. And so you just never know what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can feel a little bit scattered sometimes. And I guess my worry as a teacher is just that their technique's going to fall by the wayside with just so much time trying to, you know, just kind of scramble to play the notes. And yeah, so it's always sort of, again, kind of setting expectations with that too. We might actually not be able to play all the notes at the concert, but at least yeah. if we can play them with good form and play as much as we can. We do our best. And it's just a tough, it's a tough one. But so rewarding. I mean, I do find that when students join these groups, the practice time goes up, you know, they're making new friends and just, you know, they're more invested in it. So yeah, it's just tough when there's a lot of material. <laughs> For sure. 
there's no perfect way, but I think that like having that environment where you're playing things that is, you know, we've been talking about being really efficient and going slowly, but that paired with something that's like a little bit too challenging playing with people that are better than you is probably like the best thing for any musician. I think that's how, um, you know, and plus orchestra is always fun. Like that's where I made all my friends as a kid and, uh, you know, just because it's not perfect and it doesn't necessarily align with your piece in the grand scheme of things, I still think it's something that's super, super valuable. Um, so yeah, play an orchestra, best thing. Yeah, it's so inspiring. I remember especially when they would bring in the professional orchestra players to play with us in youth orchestra for one of the mm-hmm. concerts during the year and just sitting next to a pro and just especially those moments where I was keeping up with them. I'm like, wow, <laughs> I'm really yeah. getting somewhere. It's just, you know, it just sets you on that trajectory where like you're saying like this, we're doing this for life not everyone gets into it expecting that they'll necessarily do it for life. But I think once we have some of those experiences, we definitely realize, yeah, this is my thing. I'm doing this no matter what, no matter how many challenges I have to overcome. So it's worth it, but hard <laughs> at the same time, hard to balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. Um, just let's hear a little bit more just about you and maybe what drew you to the violin. When did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Ooh. You know, I, I started violin as a kid. I think probably like most professional violinists when I was five. And it was like, I would say a serious activity, but I definitely didn't have any you know, idea or ambition to go professional. It's something that I, I maintained, but I, you know, I, I wanted to quit probably once a year. Um, and my parents would, you know, who are always very supportive and never pushed me um, past what I wanted to do, but they'd be like, you know, we paid for the session, you're going to finish the session and then we'll talk. And then I would always forget and just continue. Um, so yeah, I kind of was playing through uh, high school and I think it was an orchestra tour when I was like 17, like end of high school, where I was like, this is awesome. Like, this is what I want to do. Um, it's so cool that we were in New York and it was just like playing in different um, concert halls and meeting different professional violinists and talking about all, all the, I don't know, it just felt like such an adventure to me. And I was like, I'm, I think I'm going to go for it. And, um, then I, you know, I grew up in California as well. So um, I was in looking at different youth orchestras and uh, auditioned for the San Francisco Symphony Youth Orchestra. And when I made it in there, just for my senior year of high school, because um, I'd never auditioned before, I thought that was like the most fun experience ever. Like that really, I think, pushed me over the edge and being in that environment and Davies Symphony Hall and getting the coaching that we were getting um, yeah, it just made me really fall in love with playing in an orchestra and playing violin. So I had a really busy year that year because I wasn't 100% sure if I wanted to become a violinist or if I wanted to go into sciences. You know, I, I had a few options, so I kind of did did both. And then I just figured, like, let's see. <laughs> um, and I was lucky to get into some the music schools that I wanted to go to. And, um, yeah, and then I, I went to McGill for my undergrad, um, moved out to Montreal, and I've been in that area ever since, where I met my husband, met my friends, and just kind of never left. I really love K-12 
Canada and there's a really cool, it's just like a really cool place to, to be a musician. There's always stuff to do and um, always interesting musicians to play with. That's kind of how I, I got into becoming a violinist kind of by, by accident. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And it sounds like once you really got very like out in the world, you took the music out into the world, you got social with the music, you got to travel with the music and how much that opened up your world. You saw it was kind of this vehicle to get out and share and make community. And, and that's, yeah, I think we've been talking about practice <laughs> so much and it seems very like head down in the book, you know, but just for people to realize there's, there's that whole world. It's like, it's just so rewarding to, yeah, do the practice. And then you go play with a big orchestra. I remember like the timpani coming in on, I don't know, just some of those, you know, big Tchaikovsky type pieces, you know, it's like, whoa, this is, I can feel the stage vibrating. This is amazing. <laughs> or a band or just whatever the outlet is that someone's interested in. It's, it's so rewarding. When you were, were thinking of quitting though, so you just kind of just forgot forgot about it after your parents said oh well we'll just we have to wait for these lessons to be over or something or or how did that go was it always maybe like you're getting frustrated with something you were working on or just oh yeah I, I didn't have a very strong technical foundation which is why I'm so passionate about that now I think um I had to do a lot of remedial work when I was about 15 16 and then again when I got to university just to like um be able to to pass certain roadblocks in my playing. Um, my teachers always said that, say that I had like a very expressive and beautiful sound. And they had <laughs> one teacher that's like, I don't even know how you're making the sounds that you are making, like holding the bow the way you're holding the bow. So I had to, I think that lack of structure when I was younger, and it wasn't necessarily my, my teacher's fault. I think um, maybe I wasn't interested in practice or I just didn't understand how to practice um I got to a certain point where you just cannot go any further with that sort of setup and technique um and the only thing that got me to be able to move past that was actually a new teacher when I was just at the age where I think I was ready to be receptive to changing my technique and that is like (laughs) a conversation for itself we talked about that I think actually left in the the other episode we recorded for my podcast but yeah people can go check that out either either podcast they can check out that episode yeah it's tough I've seen teenagers get there as well where especially if they're coming to me at say 14 15 and they've been playing for several years but then we find these technical issues and they want to audition for the Allstate Orchestra or this or that, this summer music thing, yeah. you know, and then we find all of this stuff and we say, oh, and you've never played any scales before. Oh, no. So it can, yeah, if we don't sort of recognize that there will be those, it's not even a setback. It's just, it's like just a step back and kind of a reframing of things mm-hmm. maybe. And we all have to do that from time to time. But I think at that age, it can be particularly difficult to take that breath and go, okay, I'm going to work on this for a few weeks, clean up this technique, maybe a few months, and then everything will be better because they're just on this trajectory. Like they're a rocket ship taking off, you know, just their, their personalities. It's like, (laughs) let's get out into this world. Let's do this thing. So yeah, I can totally understand how that would be difficult when, you, you know, you just, it's hard to meet the requirements. Yeah. And, and not that, I mean, as a teacher, it's like always 
the goal is to train the student with as little bad habits as possible, but stuff creeps in and we can harp on them and we can, you know, just keep on trying to find different angles to approach the situation, but it's never going to be perfect. And I think what you're saying about, you know, it was just the right time for you to take it in. I just, as a teacher, and, and I think any student out there has to sort of realize that even with the best of training, even with the best of practice, yeah, sometimes it's just a timing thing. And it's just, we need to tackle it when the time's right. And maybe it's been communicated in a way that we can then take in, or it's just, we've had enough challenge that we're ready to do the work. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think that, um, yeah, the student just needs to be ready. And there's no bad habit that can't be undone. Like it's, it's a hassle, like relearning how to hold the boat properly. It's a, it's a lot of work and um, it's not necessarily why you got into violin playing, but you know, you can do it. And I think the most important thing is just having the love of music because that's what's going to be driving you in like the, the community and going to orchestra concerts and just surrounding yourself with all of the things that are enjoyable. And then all of the technique, I think, will fall into place if you have the right guidance and the right mindset. But yeah, it, it can all be fixed in time. You just have to be, I think, ready. Yes. Well, we wish you all the best getting back into your studio. And I'm sure your students will be thrilled to see you. Thank you so, so much, Laurel, for having me. It's been really a pleasure talking about all the things practice and all the things violin. Thanks again to Julia Reddy for sharing all of her tips and experience with us. I ended up taking a walk halfway through editing this episode, and on that walk, I was sort of mulling over the idea of coming back and actually turning it into two episodes, thinking, gosh, there's just so much information here, and I really felt like all you listeners would have to sit by with a piece of paper and a pencil and just really write a lot of notes and could get a lot out of it. So yes, just... Thanks again to Julia for sharing so much wisdom and so many ideas and creative ideas about how we can make better use of our practice time. And like she said, really find ways to fit violin into our lives rather than fit our lives around violin, which of course would be lovely, but it's just not very realistic for most of us. Please check out her website, juliareddy.com. That's J U L I A. R-E-D-D-Y, juliareddy.com. And her podcast website is violinclass.co. So violinclass.co is where you can learn about the podcast. And then Julia Reddy is everything else she's doing, including lessons. And I'll have some links to the warm-up routine, PDF download, and the music that we've been hearing, this beautiful Ravel music that uh, we've just been kind of weaving in and out throughout our chat here. 
And as always, I have a few takeaways that really seem to stick with me both the first time and the second time listening through our conversation. And we can talk about that in a minute. But before that, of course, you can always go and check me out at laurelthompson.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-L. T-H-O-M-S-E-N, laurelthompson.com. And there you can learn more about me, my recordings, my teaching and courses, and of course my companion project to the podcast here, which is the Violin Geek blog. So head over there. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, or you're interested in looking into some lessons with me or something like that, you're always welcome to reach out via email. My email is laurel at laurelthompson.com. And I'm specifically always interested in ideas about topics for the podcast and blog, just maybe technique questions you have or practice questions you have, or I've been getting some questions recently from teachers dealing with different types of students. And that's always kind of interesting. And of course, we're, we're not necessarily there in the practice room. We don't really know the whole story, but certainly it's interesting to reflect on a story and my experience as a teacher and bounce around some ideas. And, you know, we're all here to help each other. So that would be a way to help me for sure would be your ideas for new topics as well as interviews. And if you're liking this podcast, please rate and review it wherever you listen. That also helps people who might be scrolling through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or places like that come across it easier and check it out. So thank you. Yeah, so I think my favorite takeaway from this episode was Julia's idea of having different progress intensities over the course of a year or over the course of whatever certain time frame and recognizing that we just we need to balance practice with our daily life. And sometimes we can foresee that we're going to be a lot more busy and we need to set our expectations appropriately. And I think reflecting on that as a teacher, I've seen times when students have gotten really busy. And while I've recognized that and tried to help them sort of navigate through that time, maybe with a little bit less expectation of how far we're going to get and all of that. I think in my early days as a teacher, when students came to a lesson unprepared, they didn't have a lot of time to practice. Most of the time I would just take the approach of, well, let's practice in the lesson. Let's run through things as we would if we had been practicing. And I'm just kind of there as a coach helping you out, helping you practice. And I think sometimes that is fine, but in the last several years, I would say maybe the last decade or so, more and more I find it helpful to take the approach of just almost completely switching gears in these situations. What that means is maybe taking a step back and instead of pushing harder towards, you know, this kind of linear approach towards progress you know, we're working through these certain books, we're working through these certain etudes, whatever, we have this certain goal in mind to kind of sidestep it a little bit and not necessarily for a long time, but just maybe just for that lesson or for that period of time where the student is really busy. Especially this time of year, I have a lot of students who are more school-age students who are getting into sports, particularly it seems like volleyball (laughs) is the thing that 
is just really demanding. Like some of these girls are saying that they're doing, you know, two to three to four hours of volleyball practice every single day after school. And yeah, like how much time are we going to have? Or some of my adult students, they might come to a lesson and say, oh gosh, my boss bumped up our project date and now I'm working until 11, 12 o'clock at night every single day to try and get this project out. It's like, yeah, we're not going to have that much time to practice. And so encountering these sorts of stories in the lessons, just saying, well, let's use this time to do something that maybe isn't so mental, like you know, they've been staring at a screen all day, or they're saying that their teacher is requiring them to read 80 pages by tomorrow. Or I had a student just today saying, gosh, I had six tests today in school, in high school. To go and and read that much more sheet music and shifts and, you know, crazy rhythms and accidentals and Boeings and all of this, it's a lot to take in. So maybe we just kind of sidestep all of that. And it's been really nice to just say, it sounds like today's a good day to work on tone. And there's just this really nice relief in sometimes just chunking it down to something that is maybe more in the body, is more just sort of pure expressiveness. Maybe I have a student who's working on vibrato, learning vibrato, and they're kind of getting to that part of the process where they can start adding vibrato to some pieces. Maybe it's not perfect yet, but we need to be able to practice it and figure out how we can fit it in. And so we're going back over some old repertoire, pieces we haven't played forever. But it can be so affirming to go over a piece that they're now able to add another dimension to and to feel like, wow, this now sounds closer to how I always wanted it to sound. But maybe they just weren't quite ready to add all of those different flavors. And another example would be dynamics and phrasing and just overall tone, like just revisiting it with all of this new dimension that makes them excited to be playing violin. It's not like just another chore that they need to check the box on. I've also been taking students back sometimes to old pieces and especially Baroque repertoire or fiddle tunes and stuff like that. And just going and can we put our own personal spin on it in the last episode with Um, Gabe and the Hot Toddies, we talked about taking a piece like Minuet 3 from Book 1 Suzuki and adding some ornaments to it or something like that. I've been doing that with some students where it's just I can kind of see it on their faces that they just they feel like they're going to disappoint me. And it's nice having a lot of teaching experience under my belt now where I feel like I'm better able to recognize sort of when a student is reaching that point where they're kind of fearing a plateau, or we just need to sort of take a little step back and just kind of catching that moment, even sometimes before it happens. And of course, when we go through the year, there's just some certain times that tend to be busier for most people. And as a teacher, I'm just trying to be a little bit more aware of that so that we can head off any of these situations that might derail the student and make them feel bad about how they're doing. And it was really affirming and kind of confirming to hear from Julia about 
how even sometimes it's okay to take a break and that there will be slow times. And just, I think as students and as teachers, we need to recognize that there's sort of a flow to it and it's just kind of about staying in the game. So that is my takeaway. And if you have any particular takeaways or anything that really struck you or some success stories that come out of listening to this episode, I'm sure that Julia would be happy to hear about them and I would as well. So feel free to share. I hope everyone's doing really well out there and having a great month. I have a really fascinating interview coming up for you next time. So please stay tuned to the Violin Geek podcast. And until then, happy practicing.